hope that I'll see you there as well. Uh, let's, uh, let's get moving uh, today. Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts 1. Last uh, fall, last fall, the elders went away. We, we went away to uh, just a small cabin um, towards East Tennessee, and we got away. And after we kind of spent some time together, we watched the Bills, or the Titans beat the Bills. That was a great night, Monday night, if you remember that. We watched a great game. After we act like middle school boys for a few hours, we actually did get around to planning out this series. We kind of got together and said, okay, God, what do you want us to do as a church? How do you want us to move forward as a church in the middle of a world that's really drastically changed over the past two years? And so uh, that's where the series, that's the heart behind this series called Reset. So I hope it blesses you. So um, here's the first thing I want to show you. I want to show you the series graphic and explain it to you. This is called a Cairo. A Cairo is a a Christogram or a sign that represents Christ. And so this specific one here, if you'll notice in it, there's an X and a P. These two signs represent, uh, the X is, stands for Chi, and the P stands for Rho. Those two uh, signs are the first two letters of Christ's name in Greek. All right, it's called the Chi Row symbol sign. The first uh, place in human history that we see the usage of the Cairo sign was on the Roman soldiers. It was on their shields in the middle of the battle of the Milvian Bridge, which was on October the 28th of 312 AD. And so at the time, the Roman soldiers were under the uh, governor and the, the emperor of Constantine. If you know anything about Constantine, he was a fierce opponent of Christianity. And so uh, days before the battle, Constantine and his uh, soldiers were out in the middle of a field and they just kind of gazed up in the sky and they saw a sign. They saw a sign like the Cairo and underneath the sign, there was this inscription in the sky that said, conquer by the sign. And so uh, you got to remember, uh, Constantine's not a Christian. He doesn't understand anything about this. He doesn't know Greek, and he doesn't know the, the interpretation of Cairo. And so he's just sitting there all day pondering what is the meaning and the reason for why he saw this sign. He doesn't have an answer. He goes to bed at night, and the account Constantine gave after that was during his sleep, Christ came to him in his sleep through a dream, and, and basically, it revealed to him the very same sign that he had seen in the sky that day. And that Christ told him that he was to take this sign and that he would mark, he would mark, mark it on his soldiers in some kind of way that it would protect them against their enemies in the middle of a battle. That it would keep them safe. And so what Constantine did, he took the Cairo, and he embedded it. He etched it on the shields of all of his soldiers. They won the battle. Several days later, they won the battle. Constantine was converted to Christ. And then seven months later, Christianity, which had been persecuted for 300 years in Rome, became legal in Rome and then eventually became the official religion of Rome. All of those taken in consideration, all because they were marked by the Cairo, they were marked by Christ. We're using the Cairo for our series because this, we are soldiers in God's army, which is called the church. And we are all in the battle. We're in a battle, not against flesh and blood, we're in the battle against the sin and a satanic-saturated world. And we, we can't opt out of the army. We're all soldiers enlisted in it. And it is a fierce battle. So we can remain theologically accurate in the battle. We do know through our study of Rome, uh, Revelation that the war has already been won. So let's remember that. We're fighting a battle. The war has been won. We don't have to be alarmist. And we know how the end comes out. But the reality is we're in the thick of the battle right now, and the battle is very fierce for the Christian. Christians, I don't know if you knew this, but 
are becoming the most discriminated against and oppressed people slash race in the entire world. That's what's happening right now. There's, you know, you'll see um, Christians killed all over the world on certain sites, but you don't see it in the mainstream media. There is a guy in Colorado, he's a baker, and for years the guy's been getting sued over and over and over again because he refuses to bake cakes for gay weddings. And so um, he, he just, he's made his beliefs known, but he just keeps getting sued over and over and over again. In our culture, we know that if you come out as uh, gay, lesbian, homosexual, transgender, you're celebrated. If you get up and you stand up and you say you're a Christian and you speak freely about it, then you are silenced or you are canceled. Pastors used to be respected in the community, and now they're suspected and disrespected by those outside the church and even some inside the church. We're facing as Christians a censorship issue that's coming our way that, that's trying to violate our freedom, civil rights, and religious liberties. Uh, some of the ways that censorship is happening right now is uh, the House of Representatives. I don't know if you know this right now, but they're currently fighting uh, and pushing for uh, the gagging of Christian mouse in the workforce when it comes to speaking against the LGBT community. Uh, Google, we read an article in the office about three weeks ago from Google that says uh, soon, I don't know a date on it, but soon Google, if they go through your email, your Gmail, your Docs, or your Google Drive, and they see anything in it that they deem to be hate speech, that they can lock up your files and lock up your accounts. Well, as pastors, we, we, we use Google Docs for our sermons, and so when they look at this sermon, they probably can say it's hate speech. So they're probably going to lock up our files one day. So we're scrambling around looking for different uh, formats for our sermons. But the censorship is an issue that's coming. Um, another thing that you can simply watch within five minutes of TV, um, and we're seeing within five minutes of a commercial, an ad for a medication or a sitcom, we're, we could see men kissing men, women kissing women, um, God's design of a marriage and family just distorted. It's just a, a bombardment of things. We have to understand that we're not just watching TV. Um, we have to understand that Caesar is trying to indoctrinate us and wants us to act like Romans. Uh, they're trying to... Uh, Continually put this before us so that we would be desensitized to sin. So if you stand up against that, of course, we know that we get the accusation of closed-mindedness. We're on the wrong side of history. Uh, we're, we're haters, bigots, whatever it is. The battle is fierce for us. We know this. But we are not in unprecedented times. The early church... Uh, has been here before. They, in many ways, experienced a lot of the same things because they didn't privatize their faith. If they privatized their faith and just kind of stay home and went with the flow and don't get involved, it probably wouldn't have felt so bad. But they, they professed their faith in Christ. They stood firm on the Bible and what it, what it stood for. And so they, they ended up losing a lot of things. They lost jobs. They lost families. They lost lifestyles. They lost money. They lost their lives, period. We know that there was some severe persecution there. But the point is, is they didn't just survive. The church didn't just survive in back in Acts. They thrived. Why did they thrive? Here's the reason that they thrived. It's not because they were marked by the Cairo, but they were marked by Christ. They were marked by Christ. So the way... This church, our church life point, has decided to move forward into this world that is hostile to the Lord, that's changing all. The way we've decided to go forward is not by coming up with new cunning, cool strategies to be able to try to ad adapt to the world today. So there's a lot of churches right now that are kind of like, well, how do we do church? Do we go digital? Do we, how, do we, how do we create cool atmospheres to get everybody back in the church who was lost during the pandemic? 
So they're strategizing, scheming, planning, talented. All, they're trying to do all these things. That's not what we're going to do. What we're going to do is we're going to go back. We're going to go back to the church in Acts. We're going to reset and see these marks of Christ throughout the church as it's being built up. And then we're going to mimic them. We're going to preach on them, and we're going to stay steadfast on adhering to these things. So that's the direction of our reset series. Uh, thanks for laboring. You know, sometimes on days when we start a new series, there's a little bit more up top we have to talk about. Um, but today, the first mark we're going to see in the early church is that they were dependent on the Holy Spirit. They were dependent on the Holy Spirit. Just the mention of Holy Spirit right here already prompts probably a lot of different responses over the room because of either experience, uh, what you've seen, or education, whatever. We all have different responses to Holy Spirit. Here's where most people might land or a couple of different spaces. Number one, some people hear Holy Spirit and they get real nervous. They think about that guy well, that girl who just, when they come around, it just gets really weird. They, they, they kind of come around, they start talking about spirit this and spirit that, and they're being a little too vocal in church. Hey, you're doing a little too much amen over there. You're raising your hand a little bit too much. Can you dial that thing back? And if so it gets us really uncomfortable. We've seen the charismania on TV. We've seen the abuses of the Holy Spirit. So we're like, hey, let's just stay in the lane over here. Can we just get some order up in here? Like, I'll take Father, Son, Holy Bible, but you get the Spirit, man. I just don't know what's going to happen over there. That's where a lot of people go. And to the detriment, Holy Spirit is a forgotten God. I think, I'm going to make a statement. I think most of our church would probably land in that camp. We're a little, play close to the vest here. We come in here, don't get too crazy. Hey, somebody says amen. Everybody's like, what? What are you doing, man? You know, they're not, not too expressive. We want to kind of keep things in order. And like, I, I'm a little bit like that too. And I've got to be careful here. But to our detriment, if we do that, then we are treating the Holy Spirit as a forgotten God. We got to come out of that ditch. Now, here's the other side. Because some of you are like, hey, there's another side. Yeah, there is. There's some people who take the Holy Spirit and they overemphasize uh, the Holy Spirit over the other two persons in the Trinity, the Father and the Son. They, they think that the Holy Spirit is the most powerful manifestation of God himself. They typically, this is not always, they're very free people. Uh, they, they don't like order. Uh, they just want to follow the Spirit wherever the Spirit kind of goes. Uh, they typically are not real deep in the scriptures. They don't really know theology that well. They just kind of want to follow the Spirit where they go. And so to their detriment... When the storm of persecution comes in, in the battle, they just kind of get swept away. So we want to be a people that does not end up in either ditch. And so my hope is today, as we go through this Holy Spirit, we kind of explain a little bit about, more about the Holy Spirit, that we would just kind of be correct in that, right? We would kind of dial into what the biblical Holy Spirit looks like. So let's do a couple things before we dive into the text. First thing I want you to know is the Holy Spirit is a he and not an it. Even in my own language sometimes, I've got to catch myself and say, hey, it's a he, it's not an it. The Holy Spirit is a manifestation of God, a personal manifestation of God, a he, not an it. Uh, of course, the Christian faith is that we are monotheistic people. We believe in one God, in the form of three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the Trinity. I wish I had time to explain the Trinity to you today, but Augustine said this, if you deny the Trinity, you can lose your soul, and if you try to explain it, you can lose your mind. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I get that. I, I, sometimes I can do that too, but um, in regards to our salvation, where does the Holy Spirit kind of fit in there? This is a good kind of idea to keep thinking about. Um, in regards to our salvation, God the Father um, is the author. He planned our salvation in eternity's past. That's what God the Father does. 
God the Son, Jesus Christ, accomplishes our salvation. And then God the Holy Spirit applies our salvation. God the Father planned it, authored it. God the Son accomplished. God the Holy Spirit applies. So uh, those are just some uh, good things to stick a stake in the ground up top. Before we get into this text today, in the book of Acts, we're going to see... Uh, we're going to see the promise of the Holy Spirit, we're going to see the arrival of the Holy Spirit, and then we're going to see the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me, uh, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll go to work on this text. Father, we are here for you. We've sang that earlier, and we mean that. I pray that that is the posture of all of our hearts and minds. We are here for you and for no other person or reason. If we are, we will miss you today. Because you, God, are our greatest need. No matter what we came into this room with today, on our mind, what worry, pain, anxiety, celebration, whatever was going on in our life, God, you still remain our greatest need. So I pray, God, by your grace, that you give us yourself today. And you would give us a clear picture of who you are as the Holy Spirit. Write our minds. God, write all of our experiences and all the errors of our misunderstandings. Give us a clear picture of who you are today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Acts 1. Let's read 1 through 5. The first thing we're going to see is the promise of the Holy Spirit. In the first book, all right, so let me pause really quickly this is the second book. Now, Luke is the author of Acts. So when he says the first book, guess what book he's talking about? Gospel of Luke. What are we reading in our reading plan right now? Gospel of Luke. There you go. So as you, if you're tracking through the reading plan, you're going to see a similar writing style because Luke's the author of both the books. So let's keep going. In the first book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So where we find ourselves in the middle of the Bible and the entire story is we have the post-resurrection but pre-ascension Jesus here. So he has died, he's gone to the cross, he's been resurrected, and on 40 days on earth after that, so he's not yet ascended to the right hand of God in heaven. So he's right here, and he shows up. And remember, he's just been killed, so he shows up to his disciples after being beaten, humiliated, and defeated. And he finds the disciples ho-hum, down in the dirt. They're in a fetal position, all tore up. Oh, we've lost our Savior. Our rabbi teacher is gone. And they're just crumbled mess. And he comes in, he's like, Boys, get up. Wake up. I'm in the flesh. I'm alive. I'm not dead. We have work to do. Get up. Let's go. Right? So he's given this, this pregame speech, so to speak. We, we know that some of the most amazing speeches of all time are sports pregame speeches. So that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's getting his guys amped up and amped up and amped up. And he says, and they're ready to go. They're fired up. They're ready to charge the gates of hell. And he says, hold, hold, hold on, wait, wait, don't go yet. You can't go until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He's making a promise that the Holy Spirit is going to come. Now, it's important to understand that in the Old Testament, that the Holy Spirit, what the function of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is that it would, he, Holy Spirit, would come upon people, prophet, priest, kings, judges, others, 
He would come upon them for a temporary, specific task that he had called them to do. An example would be Samson. The Holy Spirit came upon him, and he took a jawbone and slayed Philistines. That's an example there. But it came upon a person for temporary purpose, specific task, and then it left them. It did not indwell inside of them. But now here, it's coming to them to dwell inside of them, which was a promise of Ezekiel, that one day God would send the Holy Spirit and would dwell inside of people. Look at Ezekiel 36. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So this is the promise. It's coming. It's going to be inside of you. Now, it's also important to remember Jesus has just spent three years with his disciples He has taught them, I'm sure, taught them a lot of methods in ministry. How to talk to people with gospel fluency on their lips and how to do this and that and serving. By example, he's just taught them a lot of physical good things and the right things to do in the church. But his point here is he says that all of those things are useless if you go off and do that without the power of the Holy Spirit. So don't go yet. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's why that's important. And the main point of the text here is that we need the Holy Spirit to do the work of ministry. Is because um, really probably back in the 50s all the way up to the 2000s, the American church, which that's not every congregation in America, but it's just enlarged, the American church forgot that. The American church uh, sought to uh, do a lot of things, a lot of practicing pragmatism, meaning using skills and talents and strategies and schemes in order to do ministry and to build the church. They forgot, although in good intentions, they wanted to reach people. That's not a bad intention, but... They're practicing, it showed that they truly had a misplaced trust. They were trusting in people to build the church instead of the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's a couple of ways that the American church did this. The first thing is they began to use heavy-handed, very talented, gifted speakers to manipulate emotions in order to conjure up decisions for Christ. Uh, uh, Just sermons that would just scare people into conversions. Anybody want to go to hell? If you don't, raise your hand, pray this prayer, that kind of thing. Or uh, they just kind of, they would start to manipulate emotions in a gathering. Hey, just keep playing that song. Anybody, let me see your hand. Yep, there's a hand. There's another one. Come on down. You still got time. Keep playing songs back there. There's still time for you to come. There was a lot of human manipulation to try to conjure up decisions for Christ. When you do that, you are showing that you believe that the power is in you and not the power of the Holy Spirit. So what happened? Well, you forced a lot of people into Christianity. And if you can force them in, you can force them out. If you draw them in that way, then they'll leave that way. So that was one of the greatest missteps of the American church during that time. Another thing that the American church did, once again, I think it was in a good good desire to reach people, is they began to uh, design their church to be attractional. Here's what I mean. They, They sat down and said, hey, if we could make this place really cool, and creative, and then we can draw people and from the masses. People will just come to Jesus, and they'll just come to our church. If we, so they started to build globo churches, uh, build huge playgrounds that would just disnify the church, creative, cool worship services, maybe bringing in lasers and Led Zeppelin light show kind of things, and we'll just try to, hey, if we could just make this place so cool, and all the lost people will think, hey, those Christians are not really that weird that we can just build this thing. They put their trust in man to build the church and do the work of ministry. 
instead of the power of the Holy Spirit. We know how that really turned out. It created a class of consumer Christianity, right? It's what it kind of created. Now, why attractional? We, we want to be attractive. Let me make sure I'm understanding, I explain this. We want to be attractive to lost people. But my point is, is they should be attracted to Jesus in us, not what we do with our buildings and those kind of things. So if you're looking for a church, don't go look for those things. Don't go look for cool programs and walls and slides and all these things. that have. That's not what you look for in a church. You want to be attracted to Jesus. That's the greatest need that we all have. So uh, you think about the early church. They were not very uh, seeker-friendly, were they? Hey, come on out to our service today. You'll see Paul. He's going to get boiled. Like, you think anybody's like, I want to be part of that church. I want to get boiled like Paul. No, they wouldn't do that at all. But yet, but yet, the church grew. The church thrived. The church spread like a good virus across the whole world under those conditions. Why? Because they trusted in the Holy Spirit to build the church and not in the power of man. Now, let me go down to what I believe is the theme passage of Acts. The mission statement, an outline for the rest of the entire book is the passage in Acts 1.8. Look at it. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in all Samaria, and to the end of the earth. First, notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you are going to be able to do some awesome miracles. You're going to heal people. You're going to start to prophesy. You're going to get these additional gifts of the Holy Spirit. You kind of reach varsity level Christian. This is what you need. That's not what he said. He said the number one reason that God is giving us the Holy Spirit was that we would be witnesses, that we would testify to the truth of who Jesus is to all the people in the world. Yes, there are personal benefits to the Holy Spirit in us. I'll get to those at the end today. But right here, according to the very mouth of Jesus, The primary reason he gave himself inside of us was that we would go tell people about Jesus. Are you using the Holy Spirit, the gift of God in you, for that reason? You're sharing Christ with people. You know that that just an ordinary, faithful believer walking in the life of Jesus who shares the gospel with one person, just one person, that that right there is more miraculous and more valuable in the eyes of God than 10,000 people, 10,000 healings, 10,000 tongues, and they don't say a word about Jesus Christ in the gospel. Holy Spirit was given to us so that we would testify about Jesus. Let's move to the second piece here. To see the arrival of the Spirit. We've seen the promise. Okay, now it's the day The arrival of the Holy Spirit, and it is found in Acts 2. So skip down a little bit. Acts 2, 1 through 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. The arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost is extremely significant. If, if we, we don't stop right here, we can just blow past that. And, oh, it's just Pentecost, whatever. It helps us to understand why it was on this specific day. And so uh, the Israelites had two annual feasts, primarily two annual feasts that they celebrated every single year. One of them was Passover and the other was Pentecost. And so in order for us to understand all of what's happening behind the scenes here, we need to go back and understand those two feasts and what they represented. First, 
Passover. Passover, we know, that is rooted in the story of God delivering the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. After he had driven them out of Egypt, uh, his tenth and final plague of death, he's coming through to take all of Egypt's firstborn. But he told the Israelites if he would just slaughter a perfect lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it over your doorpost of your homes, when I come through, I will pass over your homes and you will be saved, right? And so every single year, they did that, of course, and they were saved, but every single year, the Israelites would practice and celebrate Passover once a year. Now, if we're keeping the gospel in mind in here, we know that that Passover was pointing forward a greater Passover, a greater lamb who would be slain, which is, of course, Jesus Christ, right? That was a foreshadowing of something to happen. So that's what Passover is. Now let's go to Pentecost. Pentecost means 50. And so um, back, back in the Passover, the very first Passover that the Israelites celebrated back coming out of Egypt, 50 days after that occurred, what What occurred next was they were all at Mount Sinai. And on that day, they were gathered together um, as Moses was bringing down the law of God written on stone tablets 50 days after the Passover. That's what was happening here. So the reason I say all of those things is for this specific reason here. Right now, in the text... The day of Pentecost, the followers of Jesus were gathered together 50 days after Jesus Christ, the final Passover lamb, was slain. 50 days after the crucifixion of Christ. They're ce- what are they there celebrating? They're celebrating the day that God gave the law to them written on stone. But on this day, the Holy Spirit's going to come and write the law of God on their hearts 50 days after the slaying of Jesus. Church, there's nothing arbitrary in Scripture. These are all connecting dots. And it shows you and me both that God is sovereign over this earth. There's nothing arbitrary. There's an author behind this whole thing that's happening. When I read that, that increases my God confidence that he's ruling and reigning in this world. We have to just slow down, though, because if you just read through Day of Pentecost and you know what that means, you miss a lot of God in that, right? That's what's happening in The story, God's plan is coming all together. It arrived on the day of Pentecost because it all means, it all means something. So that's the arrival. Let's go to the last piece here. And it is the power of the Holy Spirit. This is found in verses two through eight. Let's read that. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? So what we're seeing here first is the power of the Holy Spirit. And the three signs we see here in the text associated with the arrival of the Holy Spirit. There was a strong wind, a tornado-like wind. Second is the tongues of fire that rested on the disciple. And the third sign of the power is that they spoke in tongues. So let's talk about those three things uh, because they're very, very important. Number one, 
the wind and the fire together in the Old Testament represented the presence of God. When you saw wind, when you saw fire highlighted in the scripture, it meant that God was there. He was among them. These aren't just natural uh, reactions and science and happening. These were, this meant God was in the presence. We see that at the burning bush, Moses, another at, at Sinai as well. But when, when fire came, when wind came, it meant the presence of God. So here God's saying, I'm coming myself. It's me. And then the third sign that we see here is that they spoke in other tongues. They spoke in other tongues. Now, we're going to get to the tongues thing in just a moment. But before I talk about the tongues, I want us to see in the text, it says that they were filled with the Spirit. Or I think earlier in the text, it said they were baptized in the Spirit. So I want to talk about what that means, uh, us being baptized and us being filled with the Spirit. Number one, at conversion, when we... Or uh, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and there's an authentic belief in Jesus, and we are saved, we're wakened up. The Holy Spirit wakens us up to our sin and our need for a Savior. At that very moment, if it's authentic, God, the Holy Spirit, baptized. We are baptized in the Spirit. We are immediately at conversion, full of the Holy Spirit. It's a one-time flooding in. It's a forever filling of the Holy Spirit. You never lose the Holy Spirit. It happens at the moment of conversion. It doesn't happen in the tub. That's a sign of it's already happening. But that happens at the point of conversion. But there's a second kind of filling of the Spirit that the text talks about as well. Here's what that means. It means to be filled with the Spirit that you are just so dialed in and you're so aware to the Spirit of God inside of you that it's just amplified. You're aware, and God starts to work more through you because you are being filled in the Spirit. So as the Spirit comes into these disciples in the 120, immediately they get baptized by the Holy Spirit, and then they also become filled with the Spirit. They're just dialed in. They're thinking about God. They're not thinking about work and home and family and all the crap. They're just thinking about God, and he just fills them up. And then the power comes upon them, and it comes in the form of speaking tongues. Let's talk about that, about the tongues here. As he's speaking, notice in the text that it is not babble. It is a known language. It says, how how do we, we hear them, we understand them because they're hearing it in their own native language language. So when we hear tongues mentioned in the scriptures, we need to know there are two two types of tongues that are talked about. There is a known language and there's an unknown language. There is a private prayer language and then there is a public prayer language. And so these guys are practicing, man, they're, they're speaking in a known language. They're understanding the gospel in their own native language. They're not just babbling uh, words that no one understands what's happening. Because we've all seen that, right? We have seen churches like that that publicly practice a very private thing they should not do because all it does is it brings confusion into the church. This past week, I was, uh, I was watching a, a YouTube video. It was a small, small church. I don't know where it was. I can't remember. But the pastor's preaching. It's a small congregation. It's one dude gets up, and he just starts going nuts. He is lapping the church like Dale Earnhardt. He's just flying around. He's babbling all kind of stuff. He's doing all this stuff. And then he comes down the middle of the aisle, comes up to the pastor, takes his jacket off, slings it up against the pastor. It wraps around his neck like a scarf. And then everybody in the church is just sitting there. Do, do you think in that moment, put yourself in that church for a minute, do you think in any way, shape, or form that the people in that church are looking and saying, oh, Jesus is so awesome? No, they're not doing that at all. They're saying somebody got into the adult gummies, and it's that guy, right? That's what they're saying. This guy's crazy. It's because you don't use the gift of tongues in that way. It brings confusion in the church. That's what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 14. And that is not what's happening here in the text. They are speaking in a known language. And all of a sudden, 120, doing all these things, 
And the people in Jerusalem, these devout men, they hear it. They hear the gospel being preached in their own native language. And they're like, these guys, the Galileans, the uneducated Galileans, they're not smart enough to know our language. How in the world that these guys, these bums, untalented, uneducated people, how in the world are they preaching my language and me understanding the gospel? This is the power of the Holy Spirit put on display in this very descriptive passage here. That doesn't mean that you're going to be able to stand up and do the same thing. This is a descriptive passage. It's not prescripted. But they believed. They were amazed by what these Galileans could do. There's two other Old Testament stories that I want you to see that's happening in the background here that help us to be even more amazed at this. In Exodus 32, after God received the law at Mount Sinai, came down, what did he find the Israelites doing? And they were making golden calf. They were kissing calves. What did God do? What was God's response to their calf kissing? Well, on that day, if you know your history, he killed 3,000 of them. God did that. He's pretty serious about idolatry. He did that. Now, what happens now in the story that we're reading, 120 preach the gospel. Peter goes on to preach the sermon at Pentecost. Guess how many people are saved that day? 3,000. Nothing is arbitrary in the scriptures. Also in Genesis, Genesis 11, if you know the story about the Tower of Babel, when, when man began to exalt himself and the enlightenment of man, and we could do anything, we could build the kingdom, and they start building this tower. God comes in, he says, oh, no, you won't. I won't. He confused their languages. He distorted them all. They couldn't understand each other at all, all the different languages. And now here in this story, 120 preach, and then the one language all comes together. They all begin to understand the gospel once again, they're united together in one message of the gospel. There's a lot happening if we just slow down just a little bit. Then we see the effect of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 12 through 13, we see the response. So he says this, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? So they're, they're asking a good question. Hey, it's awesome. What's this mean? But not everybody responded that way. Others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Church, when we share the gospel with other people, number one, the Holy Spirit will control the outcome. He'll never fail. <laughs> He's effective 100% of the time. And those who the Father has appointed, they will say, whoa, I'm amazed by this. What does this mean? But also on the other side, some will look at us and say, they're crazy. Those Jesus followers, they're just nuts. That is what the Holy Spirit does. That's not a failure of the Holy Spirit. You can't say, Holy Spirit, well, good try. You didn't do it. No, it's accomplishing exactly what it's doing. This is what happens when you go share the gospel. It is up to the Holy Spirit. It's not up to you. You can't take credit when someone receives it, and you can't take the blame when they reject it. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Only God draws people to the Holy Spirit. What we're seeing as we finish up here is that all throughout history, God is using the Holy Spirit to start revivals in the church. It's God who does it. It's not man. I could put a tent in the parking lot. If God doesn't show up, nothing's happening. There is no revival. Only the Holy Spirit 
does the revival of the church. And he's done this here. He did it 2,000 years ago in Pentecost. And we still pray that he does that today. We need the Holy Spirit to continue to insulate us, to fuel us for the mission that he's called us to do, to engage the battle of the world that we are in. Let me close out by recapping what we've seen. God has promised all of us the gift of the Holy Spirit. He has arrived already, and he's made a way for you to receive the Holy Spirit. It has the power to save you and to empower you to live on this earth in the battle and accomplish the mission that he's called you to do. You and I, we all need God, the Holy Spirit. Paul said, without the Holy Spirit, we will not see God. We'll see the back of God's head. We will not see his face. We need the Holy Spirit. The question is, how do we get it? The Holy Spirit is only received by those who believe in grace through faith in Jesus Christ. By believing in the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, that it is your only hope of ever being right with God. You can't conjure the Holy Spirit. You can't uh, burn enough candles or meditate long enough to get in the Spirit. You can't do those things. You can't work your way to righteousness one day. And God says, well, you've worked really hard. Let me just give you the Holy Spirit. No, it doesn't come that way. It only comes by the grace of God when we believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Do you believe? Have you believed? Are you believing in the gospel? This is not a one-time belief. Are you believing today in the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you want to talk about that today, questions, anything that kind of came up through the sermon, please come talk to us. You could check a box on the card or just kind of stop up on the way out. For those who believe in Jesus, isn't just an amazing to think that we serve a God like no other God. Not, not a God that says we must climb our way up to him. That's all other religions. Every other religion says we got to get up to him. We serve a God who came down to us in Jesus Christ. So he's not this big man upstairs guy. He's not the, the big guy in the sky. This big guy in the sky, this God came down to us. He's very near in the person of Jesus. And if he just stopped right there at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he's worthy of our lives, right? But he didn't even stop there. He said, I'm going above and beyond that. I'm going to put me in you. That's how close I'm going to be to you. Don't look up anymore. I'm right there with you, inside of you. And if you have the Holy Spirit in you today, here is what the Holy Spirit does for you. He gives you access to God. He indwells believers. He possesses us. He is our insurance, our guarantee of future glory. He anoints us for service. He assures us when we are doubting. He authors the scriptures. He calls and commissions. He cleanses. He convicts of sin and says, hey, what you're doing is not right. The preacher preaches and you think, and you think in your mind, He's talking to me. Oh, he's talking to you. It ain't me. It's the Holy Spirit talking to you. He draws you near to God when we are far from God. He comforts our sorrows. He won't let you miss church without missing church. He empowers us. He fills us. He gives us gifts so that we would serve him and his church. He guides us in truth. He guards our mouths. He helps our weaknesses. He inspires and intercedes for our prayers. He interprets the scripture for us. He's the reason that we just get it. He imparts wisdom. He will graciously make us uncomfortable after we've done it again. He leads us. He liberates us. He produces fruit in us. He renews us. When we forget, he reminds us. 
He sanctifies us. He seals us. He strengthens us. He teaches us. He's a worship helper. When we run far from God, he's the one who chases us. When our marriage is struggling and when our kids are off the rails, he is the great family counselor that we go to. When we're weak, he gives us strength. When we are worried, he calms our mind. When we are prone to walk in the darkness, he brings us back to the light. When we need encouragement, he gives us a promise. When we're lost, he shows us the way. When we are in need, he is our ever-present helper. He is our God. He is the Holy Spirit. Praise God that we don't have to do this alone. If I have to do this alone, I'm doomed. But praise God through his grace that he gives us himself inside of us. Church, we are chosen by the Father God. And when we are dedicated to the Son of God, and when we are empowered by the Spirit of God, we can and we will accomplish the mission of God. Let me pray for us. Father, Again, you have, by your grace and mercy only, shown us who you are, our greatest need. God, would you help us to not forget the Holy Spirit? We're prone to do that. God, I believe the Holy Spirit amplifies all of you. It amplifies Christ. It amplifies you as the Father. And I pray that you would... Help us to dial in and be aware of the spirit power within inside of us. God, help us to put the spirit in proper perspective, that we would not go into errors or ditches. We'd still trust your word and still study who you are. God, comfort us today. And God, would you above all things help us to remember that you have given us helper to testify to the truth of who Jesus Christ is to all people in the world. We do it for your name and your name alone. Amen.